morning. I, uh, I am privileged to be here with you, and just uh, yesterday was struck by the kind of oh, energy it does take on Saturday evening. For those of you who were here to make time for something like a meeting, I'm honored by that, and honored to you for the, the invitation to be here with you. Um, you, you may know this already for those of you who were last night, but I, I am an information worker. I'm an educator, but a lot of the work that I do, just even as an educator, has to do with information. Uh, much of my time I spend behind a couple of flat screens, and I spend a lot of time just moving characters around until they fall into a certain order, and when they fall into a certain order, I say I've done work, and I'm rewarded for that. Um, but it's just an interesting age, it's an interesting transition that I've witnessed as something of a, oh, in-between transitional character, being 38 years old. I've seen the rise of the internet, I've seen the origins of the smartphone beginning in 2007 with the iPhone. Uh, my parents have seen incredible changes. Right, from the room-sized computers down to the ones that you can fit uh, first of all in your living room and now you fit in your pocket. Um, so we've, we've had to face a lot of decisions. I, I, I tell my parents sometimes that I've had to face decisions as a parent which weren't even options for them. And uh, that, that can sometimes be significant. There's a lot of, a lot of choices to make. So I have two sessions yet for you this morning. And the, the first of them has to do with our identity, has to do with what it means to be skilled, what it means to have character, what it means to belong to Christ, and what it means to actually have an identity rooted in Him. I'll start with a story. The story starts with fleas. At our house, Right now, we're trying to leave them there. We have fleas. Sounds like a confession. But it kind of is. Uh, the, the, the realization that we have fleas, it uh, hit us just one morning. We were getting our oldest, Elia, ready for school. She was getting her hair combed up by the sink. And there, there had been some mysterious little bites, really itchy little things showing up on us, and we didn't know where they were coming from. I'll be honest, I was just trying to ignore it, hoping that would just go away. But there was, there was more and more of these little things. And this morning, we were there getting Elia ready for school, and this little black creature jumps off, lands in the sink, and starts to kind of ricochet around in there, until finally I could pin it down. It's a flea. Oh dear. It's a flea. Now there is no denying it. You know, these, these bites that were going up on us, these bites that I hope would just kind of go away, you realize there's a bigger problem here, and just be ignoring it, it's not going to solve this problem anymore. We had an infestation of fleas. And we said, um, if it all started off well intentioned enough, it started off with a cat. And uh, getting a cat for us is a little bit of a step. Don't have a lot of the animals around. We're not huge animal people. 
my wife and I talk about that sometimes. We say, we're, we're going to get a cat. This would be a good thing to do. And we didn't realize it, but our cat brought with him some company. And what had started out in the basement where when this little kitten was just there by himself, we thought we have him in the basement, this kind of garage open to the outside. Uh, what had started down there had begun to spread first to the living room and then into the bedroom. And then we saw them in the kitchen once we paid attention that, yes, we're actually having a sleep here. And now we had a full-blown infestation. They were in the bed. They were in the couches. They were in the bedroom. You could find them practically anywhere. And when I, when I realized this, when I realized that we had fleas, something, something of a number of things happened. But one of the things that happened is I had this sudden impulse. I had a sudden impulse that, that was powerful. And that, that impulse was for information. Right? That impulse was to reach into my pocket, pull out this device that I frequently carry with me, and to just try to get a little bit of information. First on my smartphone, then I pulled out the laptop. Uh, I needed information. I, I had to learn about different kinds of sprays. I had to learn about different kinds of fleas. I had to learn about flea life cycles. What kind of what kind of spray might just knock them down for a little bit and then they would start to come back? What 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 kind of spray would actually knock them down and keep them down? I, I realized after several hours of poking around looking for information that I was in over my head. But still, I stuck to it. I began to learn. I started to make some orders. I began to buy some sprays. And uh, I continue to learn as I go here. We're two months into this now. And I think we're getting ahead of them. At least I, I think we're suppressing the fleet. Hopefully, maybe in a month, maybe another two months, we'll be rid of them. But I'll be honest, it's been, it's been tiring. Really, it's, it's overwhelming to have, for one, an infestation like this, but to take responsibility for it, too. It's overwhelming. When I realized how much time all of this information hunting was taking, I took a different approach to this. <laughs> Rather than me getting online, you know, looking for treatments, looking for sprays and pills and drops and collars and all of this stuff. I decided maybe I'd just be better off going with a professional right away. And that's what we did. We took him to the vet, and within about 20 minutes of being at the vet, we had a full regime of treatment, which I expected just going to work. It's like a professional team it to me. I'll let the professional deal with the cat. But the, the point of this, though, and you may have me already, the point of this is that for all the promises that technology offers us, all the promises it gives us, especially information technology, of making our lives faster, easier, cheaper, whatever these promises are, there's a lot. There's a lot of promises that are made with technology. What I'm questioning here is, in my encounter with fleas, would I have simply been just better off to call a professional from the beginning and be done with it? I realize professionals aren't always equal. Sometimes things outsmart them, too. But um, there is a possibility here that I would have spared myself a fair bit of time. I might have spared myself 
quite a bit of anxiety and possibly, just possibly, I, I might have even spared myself some money because this cycle of praise that I'm going through, I said, I'm learning as I'm going here, some praise just knocks them down for a little, some actually start to root out the problem where it's at. And it costs me some money, maybe, just possibly. If you check in with me in about two months from now, I might have saved some money just by going to the professional from the start. So I wonder, what, what is what we're doing here with all of the convenience of technology? Maybe what I'm doing with these things is just trading expertise for the opportunity just to figure it out myself. So, I might just be making a trade-off here. It isn't so much that it's better, it's just different. And what I'm getting here is independence, not so much a better life. But I have to wonder here, I have to wonder with all the stuff that technology's added to our lives with the promise of making our life easier, when we really weigh the costs and the benefits, are we really coming out on top? Are we really coming out on top? With the replacement cycles of our technology, let's say you get five years out of a laptop, you haven't done poorly. If you get three to four years out of a smartphone, you haven't done that bad. There is the subscription fees for data, for cell phone coverage, for Office 365, or whatever it is. There's a lot of things you can pay for that comes with it. And then we add to that the anxiety of being constantly attached to work, to our friends, to the news, like I mentioned last night. Being constantly wired into these things. There is this simple awareness of everything that's going on, which is sometimes a good thing, but I'm saying, too, there is a cost that comes with that. And for certain, there are some skills, there are some skills because of our use of technology that we simply don't develop anymore. Skills like math reading, okay? Skills like, listen to a little more serious, the interpretation of body language. This is something that you can only learn when you're actually in person. In, in, Estimates on very but people say that anywhere from 70 to 90% of how we communicate is actually through nonverbal means. So if we try to get that communication and just compress it all down into text or maybe into audio, you're actually losing a whole lot of bandwidth there. It's hard to overestimate that. There's consequence and there's action in learning the connection between these two, and that connection is something that technology tends to soften. And, and there's more. There's more skills here. When we're too thickly immersed in information technology, what I'm saying is that there's certain skills we may not develop. There's certain anxieties that we take on ourselves. There's certain economic consequences that we have to bear. And, and I'm just suggesting here that we, we do some accounting with that. It's not as simple as just counting on the promise of technology to deliver. There's some kind of cost attached to that. So what do we do? What do we do with technology? Well, that we know that the particulars of technology are not addressed in Scripture. 
a particular dilemma. I mean here that there's not some specific command for every decision that we have to make, and there's a lot of decisions we have to make about information technology. We won't find commands like thou shalt not access the internet or thou shalt not use Facebook or thou mayest use Facebook between your working hours of 8 to 5, but thereafter thou shalt spend time with thy family. This would be a good thing to do, but we don't have explicit commands like that. So what we need to do is take these general operating principles, to say, that are in Scripture. It's great themes. The, the intention that we see God having for His creation, for His people, is intention, and we see these intentions and these themes and principles. We have to see them through creatively in the particular setting that we're in, and this is particularly challenging. So, what I'm interested in doing today is understanding technology through the lens of discernment. And God has equipped us, He's he authorized, He's commanded His church to do this, to evaluate options, to make choices and, and contrast with each other, to set things up. And this is a difficult work, and then to, to choose an option and to prefer it. And then to follow through that, that preferred option with some kind of application. The foundation of this is what God has done, and that God has revealed Himself to us. Because of that, we can make these decisions. Because of this, we have a basis to discern what technology can and cannot do for us. It's like Scripture tells us in Ephesians 5.17, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Romans 12, 1-2, is familiar. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, by evaluating, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Hebrews 5, 14. By constant use, have framed themselves, speaking of a certain kind of people, have framed themselves to discern good and evil. Constant use. This is a gift, but it's also a faculty, something we exercise. It's some exercise that has to happen. It takes practice. So our ability here to discriminate is blessed. It's sentient. It's commanded by God, and it needs to be developed. It needs to be practiced, it needs to be exercised, and it needs to be done together. I understand this is easier said than done. So I assume that as we go into this exercise of turning, of practicing, of understanding, um, I, I don't know you all well, but I, I think I know you well enough to understand that you're not you're not just going to address these challenges of technology by ignoring them, by just abstaining altogether, although that is an option. Instead, what we tend to try to do is to engage technology selectively. We hope to accept 
some of the benefits that it offers while denying some of the liabilities, while denying some of the costs. We want to evaluate then to do that, to accept benefit while rejecting cost, we have to evaluate the use of technology and distinguish the good from the bad. We, we do this by things like um, putting our computers in public safety. We may have a smartphone, but perhaps we have certain expectations about what age is appropriate to have one. And I'm saying this is, this is acceptable. This is a good thing. So the work here is to moderate the use of technology, to enjoy connectivity, to enjoy productivity, to enjoy the access to information that technology does give us while avoiding things like challenge, while avoiding distraction, while avoiding abuse. Uh, and I mentioned here, just as a bit of a side note, um, I caught this second hand from a, a, a brother, Calvin Yoder, that Merle Burkwater, uh, if you know, Merle Burkwater says that uh, Mennonites have done better, he thinks, they've done better at abstinence than moderation. So this is a tough work for us. They've done better at abstinence than moderation. And technology is one arena in which we have tried to accept moderation. And there's a lot packed into that statement that we've done better at abstinence than moderation. And what I'm suggesting here is that we accept this as a challenge. Uh, I mentioned that for my generation of parents anyway, we're the first generation engaging at least to this level, this revolutionary level that we're facing the information revolution. And the challenge here is to simultaneously enjoy some of the ways that technology can equip us, while at the same time growing in our moderating abilities. I cannot be so pessimistic about information technology. I, I, sometimes I am, but I cannot be so pessimistic that I fear toward complete absence. But I do recognize there's liabilities, there's costs, there's trade-offs, and that progress here is not guaranteed. What I found and what I hope for you is for information technology to be integrated into a healthy lifestyle. And it needs to be drawn apart from itself and we need to get outside of its promises and tied to some kind of greater purpose that orients everything. Without these two things, without a healthy lifestyle or some kind of larger purpose, I'm really skeptical that we're going to be able to do very well in moderation. So, for the, uh, for the balance of the message this morning, what we're going to do is explore some liabilities while connecting them to a bigger purpose. We're going to explore two reciprocating kind of back-and-forth principles that are going to feel the pooling on each other. There's two principles regarding information technology and influence so that you can better understand and better equip to use discernment in our technology consumption habits. And the first principle put out there just solidly is this. 
the first principle is this. A fool with a fool is still a fool. A fool with a fool is still a fool. A fool, what do I mean by a fool? Well, what a fool does is just extend the kind of ability and skill and character that's already available to the user of the tool. That's all the tool does. It just extends the ability. It's not a substitute for ability. We talk sometimes about force multipliers. Force multipliers is a tool that takes a relatively small input and amplifies it to do work that the user of the tool couldn't otherwise do. Let's say you're along the road. You have a flat tire. You pull out the jack, you put it at the right spot, you input a small force, and you do it for a fairly long duration of time. And what that jack does is it multiplies the force that you apply to it such that you can actually lift up the entire car. It's pretty impressive. It multiplies the input force. But it doesn't substitute for the force that you give it. It's only multiplied. It won't change the tire for you. And you would be entirely misguided if you got the jack, sat it in the driver's seat, and expected it to drive for you. That's not what it can do. It's only a force multiplier. So the usefulness of a tool is not its features, it's not its glitch, it's in its skillfulness and character of the person using the tool. That's what makes a tool useful. You give a fool a tool, and you've only made a dangerous tool. Okay? You can't substitute the tool for the person. So it's a mistake to assume that a tool substitutes for ability. It's a mistake to assume that buying a high-end SLR camera makes one a good photographer. That the satisfaction that we get from finding what feels like a good deal on Amazon is the same thing as simplicity. Or that our ability to uh, out-Google our bishop on some little theological tidbit or bit of trivia makes us somehow better informed. It's, it's a mistake to think that because just because I can treat the fleas in my home, that I inevitably should treat the fleas in my home. What actually happens when we mistake tools for ability and character and skill is that life tends to just become mired down in all kinds of upgrades and technological tool grabbing. So what, what I'm suggesting here is that we, we marry the tool to its use. And we marry the tool to its use. What are you going to do with it and evaluate it based on that? I just mean that I don't need a sledgehammer to drive nails. I don't need a flagship phone if all I'm going to be doing with it is making phone calls and sending text messages. We can evaluate our options and our consumption of technology against the limitations of the older model, not the marketing hype of the new one. 
remember here that sometimes actually older tools, the ones with some wear on them, the ones with some real limitations and imperfections, actually inspire creativity. Limitation isn't a really bad thing. So immunize yourself against building up a shed full of lovely people that inevitably just kind of sit around and gather dust. It's a mistake, I'm saying, to assume that technology will magically improve our character. Technology really hasn't changed very much about basic human nature. But what it has done is extended the consequences of our choices, like a force modifier does. It's extended consequences of our choices and actions. And it's closed the gap between our impulses and our drive and their satisfaction. And we, we, we can't really blame technology for this. That's what technology does. It just makes things easier for us. And this is what it's done. It's extended the consequences of our actions, and it's also closed the gap between what we want and its satisfaction. This is what technology does. So it can only extend our basic motivations and impulses. It can't correct them. So we humans at our best, and at our most miserable, we do things with technology like making magnetic resonance imaging, which is quite the diagnostic tool, and these baby machine guns. And we do this all pretty effortlessly. This is what we do with technology. The technology is not going to provide for us an identity. And if it does provide for us an identity, there's been a serious reversal. Matthew 7.18 reminds us of this. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. You make the tree good first, and the fruit, too, will be good. This, this, um, this flies against, this flies in the face of the kind of marketing, the kind of promises that technology companies tend to make to us. Um, it's a little bit dated, but here's, here's an example. When, when Verizon was really rolling out and working hard to advertise and, and get folks signed up for their, at that point, cutting-edge 4G network, which would give you greater access and more speed so you could do the things that you need to do, um, they were rolling this out and they were advertising it, and there was a whole advertising campaign. What it did was it... Uh, it placed a protagonist and somebody that we can identify with, and it placed them in some kind of dangerous or inconvenient situation. And the problem that this person faced, this protagonist, the problem that he faced um, was solved by, well, you guessed it, it was solved somehow by 4G, blazing fast internet access provided by Verizon. And well, it, Look at that, and the Verizon itself is person solve this problem. Or there's this um, fruit-flavored company that identifies its users with a crowd of sophisticated, creative individuals the moment that they buy their product. And, and judging by the response to their iPhones and how I've identified them, which gain millions of free orders within hours of pre-order being made available for each new iteration of the iPhone, 
I think that appeal here is pretty well placed. It's working. Okay. Millions of people are paying for the privilege to stand in line for incremental upgrades to their iPhone devices. What do you see here? What do you see? Are there suggestions that the possibility of something of a reversal going on? If that tool is that important, if that tool is such a powerful identifier of a person's identity, right? If it gives them that sense of craving and longing, I'm not convinced that's actually about how much more useful that thing is going to be. There's something more going on there. We can't assume that a tool is a substitute for ability, for character, or skill. We can't assume that technology and all the information that it makes available to us will improve our character. That it's going to somehow substitute for the hard work of repentance. That it's going to be a substitute for engaging the world that we actually have with our resources, with the limitations we bring, with the skills that we do have. And this is a difficult work of returning again and again into the gospel, of falling under the grace of God, of receiving His grace, and of becoming more and more the kinds of people who bear the fruit. We can't ask Google or Siri for spiritual direction. And if we do, we're going to end up on some back country road or a field or a parking lot wondering how on earth this brings us back out to I-75. So I just, I've just suggested, I've already here that information technology can't change our basic character. Now I'm going to back up and do a bit of a reversal and argue that it does, in fact, make you after its own image. You feel the tension here from doing a reversal for you. And saying that technology will change <laughs> It will affect you. It will mold you after its own image. So the second principle, the first principle is a fool with a fool. It's still a fool. The second here is don't give whiskey to the alcoholic. Don't give whiskey to the alcoholic. So tools like alcohol change us. Tools change us into certain kinds of people. Shorthand way to say this is tools are formational. An alcoholic has a low resistance to the false promises of alcohol. And because of that low resistance, he's going to indulge regularly. He's going to bring to alcohol his obsession, his anxiety, his fears, his anger. He brings them back to the bottle. You want to help this person out? Don't give him whiskey. That won't be helpful. Now, you and I, we, um, we all have something in common with each other. We all have a similar composition. And this helps us to understand each other. You've shown kindness, and I'm inclined to like you. Be frameful on my will, and it's likely that I'll get angry with you and I'll retreat from you. This means, what this is indicating, is that at some level, 
we do have similar urges. We have similar needs. We have similar impulses. We have similar longings. This is what makes us people. We all have, and here's where I'll be going, we all have a need to belong. We all have an urge to speak. And we all have a longing to make an impact. We all want to do these things. And technology is an instrument that we use to reach for these things. We use technology as an instrument to satisfy that urge and that longing that we need to belong. We use technology many times as some kind of instrument to insulate us from our negative experiences. And we use technology to reach out and to try to make a difference. But there's a trade-off happening here. There's a cost. Technology aids us, it helps us with this, but it also forms us. It forms the messages we receive as we want to belong. It forms how we think about ourselves. It's not neutral in the process. So, whiskey, when you give whiskey to the alcoholic, it, um, it tends to reinforce his, his grandiose ideas and delusions about himself. It sparks his imagination, and this is what makes it so powerful. It allows him to entertain opinions about himself that his unempowered and unintoxicated state can't sustain. But it does this on its own terms. It becomes its master. So don't give the alcoholic with Technology promises to aid us with all of our shared longings. It promises to aid us in our quest to belong and our need to escape and our longing to make an impact. It sparks our imagination. By painting a, a picture, you could say, by sparking our imagination, giving us some idea of what we could become if we were to enhance by extension. But it does this to on its own terms. We imagine, yes, but now we imagine within the confines that are determined by our technology. So we don't want to imbibe, we don't want to drink too deeply without considering how the promise of technology connects with our vulnerabilities. Tools began have formational capacity. If you clench a steam saw for half a day, you recognize how this happens. Have your hand wrapped around that bar and um, your hand, when you're done, just becomes a conform to the bar. It's hard to unwrap it. The longer you do it, the harder it is to unclench. When we bring our needs, when we bring our hopes to technology, it's going to form itself. They will form themselves, rather, around it. So, how about this need to belong? We all have it. What happens when we bring it technology? When we uh, use, say, social media, I'll pick on that for a little bit here, this is a way of quickly and efficiently sharing our needs and the things we're enjoying with other people. Facebook connects friends. Christian Mingle connects singles. But is this 
exchange that happens in places like this. It's the kind of exchange that happens on WhatsApp, the same as an after church exchange with a brother or sister that we see in church week after week. Is friendship basically composed of the information that we exchange? The social media and messaging may complement the kinds of uh, person-on-person connection that we all need, but it can't replace it. And there's something a little more significant that happens when we use technology as a basic way of connecting. I'll suggest that you can know the character of Marlene Dietrich. Marlene Dietrich, she was a, an actress and singer, singer in the 20s and 30s. She issued, in addition to recordings of her singing, she issued recordings of applause. Applause that was directed to her. She tied on these records of nothing but applause. She would even sometimes invite her friends over and they would have an evening of listening to applause. While they listened, she would soberly recite the place of each performance where she came with applause. That was Rome. That was New York. That was Cologne. It's, it's easy for us to fuck a crowd. It's not too hard to march to a different drummer. But it's really difficult. Maybe it's impossible to march only to our own drumming. So most of us, whether we're aware of it or not, do things with an eye to the approval of some audience or another. So the question is not so much whether we have an audience as which audience we have. We all live for the applause of someone. What do we see when we look out at the world? What do we see when we're looking for applause? If Jesus, he calls us to see with a single eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. Uh, another way here to look at this uh, single eye is just simple. It's just focused on the activity and rules of God. It's focused on living before his applause. Living before his approval. Living for his glory, we say. To live for none other than the audience of God and His approval only. And what technology has given us in our quest to belong is, in some ways, this endless opportunity to live toward various audiences and to bring the potential for applause into every experience that we have. Sometimes this way of living is kind of funny. There's the story of a flatbed tow truck driver who was texting on one phone and making a phone call on the other one. He uh, took his flatbed truck off the road, he crashed into a car, he sideswiped the house, and ended up in a swimming pool with his truck. Other people have walked into light pools or dropped into open manholes on their phones. One man even walked into a bear while texting. The video is out there if you want to watch it. More seriously, though, technology brings into reach the audience 
of the many. It brings them to reach the audience of the many. And if we cause us to look into the world with multiplied and unfocused, unsimplified eyes, we're bringing into our lives the audience of many. And we can very easily begin to live as though the applause of that audience of many is what's actually going to matter. And it's hard to get away from that audience these days. So technology helps us to belong, but it does so on its own terms. It forms us around itself. How about a state? I said sometimes we have difficult experiences, sometimes they're painful, but the reality of our lives is that they just don't follow the plot line of James Bond. This isn't how our lives tend to work. There isn't always a clear plot. There isn't always a clear problem. There isn't always a clear climax. There isn't always clear resolution. And it's frequently not nearly as glamorous as the life that James Bond tends to live. The plot line of digital media that we consume and that's more and more easily available to us on our devices, this media that we consume and the, the devices that, uh, that, that we have with us constantly, they, they compete for the value. They compete for the value of our everyday experiences and the life that we live, which more frequently than not, I'm saying, are actually pretty humble, not very glamorous. They come to us, our lives do, in different parts. There's long and ungainly pauses. Sometimes it's dull. Sometimes it's a little uninteresting. Sometimes it's painful. And we're awkwardly, frequently, straddled between plot lines. It's not always moving quite as quickly as we might like. And eventually what happens here, we must, um, as, as we live out our life with this ungainliness, with this fixed spurt, with some of the ambiguity in our lives, eventually we have to notice that there's a contrast that happens between the world suggested to us in the media that we consume so easily and the world in which we actually live. And eventually we have to choose which world are we going to live in? Are we going to live in the delusion? of the world of James Bond and so many other characters like him? Or are we going to live in the world in which we live? For all of its dullness, for all of its humbleness, for all of its lack of resolution and ambiguity, the lack of glamour? Or are we going to take up the plot that's imagined for us by digital media? And if we take up that plot, that suggested to us by digital media will have escaped the world which is actually given to us. What makes this possibility of escape so serious is that when Christ tells us the kingdom of God is at hand, he's telling us that we don't have to go looking for it. We don't have to escape the world that we're actually in to see the kingdom of God at hand. Our experience of the Father's provision, the, the meaning that we seek in our life, it's not just over the next hilltop. It's not in the plot line thrown up in the media that we consume, or even in the big, grand ideas that we access 
so effortlessly online that can tell us what's wrong with our world, with our communities, with ourselves, and sometimes even suggest how to fix things. But the call of the kingdom here is an immediate call. It could give us more, not less, attention to what God has provided immediately around us. This is where the kingdom is. And technology, with some of its promises, is just a means of escape. We want black to make an impact. We all long to make an impact of something. We want to make a difference in the world. In 2014, the uh, terrorist group Boko Haram, they captured 300 girls from school in northern Nigeria. What got interesting is that in the next day, um, the social media phenomena occurred. It uh, united all under the hashtag on Twitter and Facebook of hashtag bring back our girls. First, there were thousands and then millions of people showed their support for the kidnapped girls by flooding social media with images, with outrage, and once in a while with a donation to a good cause or another, all united by the hashtag, Bring Back Our Girls. Their response, or this response, did bring a lot of attention to the situation of these girls, but in the end, it actually had very little to do with any results. And this story keeps on developing, actually, as it seems right now, I believe about half of these girls have been returned. That was 2014, six years ago. Half of them are still unaccounted for. So in the end, with all the outrage for all the support, the millions of people who got a little nudge of feeling that they made a difference, in the world where these girls actually were, nothing actually changed. So imagine this. Imagine a, a world in which everybody has their own little soapbox to stand on. They all have their little soapbox to rage, to pontificate, to lament. The craving that we all have to make a difference in this world might be satisfied. But I think there'd actually be very little change. There'd be very little actual change. This is the world that we live in. Everybody now has access to an audience. Everybody has access to a soapbox kingdom. And everybody has a chance to get this satisfying little nudge of having made an impact, of having made a difference by participating in a campaign like Bring Back Our Girls. But something more has to happen if we're actually going to say that a difference is made if there's any activity actually happening. Let me wrap this up. So long, long before we split some moral guardrails and head down into the abyss with this pornography, before we drift mindlessly into a four-hour or maybe even longer marathon of watching Downtown Abbey on PBS.org, it's free there to watch, before we give ourselves over to our virtual relationships entirely, what I'm suggesting is that we've forgotten one or maybe both of these guiding principles. 
a fool is a fool is still a fool, or that we don't want to give these alcoholics, which I'm suggesting is something like all of us, we don't want to give them whiskey. Technology is not going to magically improve our character or our skill, and technology is going to form us. It might add something to our quest to belong, to our impulse to escape, to our urge to make a difference. It might add something to that. But if we allow ourselves to be formed in the image of technology, I'm suggesting that instead of getting the things that we need, we're instead just going to be formed after the image of technology and trying on ourselves. Let's pray and then I'll ask for us Father, um, we just acknowledge that you know, we, can, we can be restless folks and we'll recognize our urges and loves and how they carry us about, how they need to rest on you. We need your approval. We need to settle our longings on you. And until we do that, there's, just, um, there's very little that, uh, that we can substitute for that. Lord, give us discernment and watchfulness in our use of technology to recognize where it is that uh, we may be relying on it in ways that turn us away from our need for you. It's a bad substitute for the relationships we need. It's a bad substitute for our love and our longing most of all things. So guide us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to understand where we're at with our use of technology. Turn our love towards you. Good Christ.